you made it. It's episode 16. And episode 16 for this book is a doozy. It is, um, it, it's so big, even I'm daunted by the concept of having to record the whole thing. So I've changed my setup a little bit. I've got the ability to pause myself and come back to it. So, you know, that's good. Uh, I, I'm, yeah, I'm a little nervous. I'm a little nervous getting this because it is a big Megillah. It is the entire employer brand architecture. And I'd break this up, but it's one big idea. There's a lot of little pieces that connect the dots and connect together and, you know, change processes. But it's, it is one big idea, and I want to get it all together in one spot. So hold on to whatever you need to hold on to, and we'll dive right in as soon as we get back. Hey everybody, James Ellis. Welcome to the Talent Cast. It is season two, which means it is the audiobook version of the book Talent Chooses You, but really as a podcast, it's really I, I it's like I took a big bag and said, I'm gonna put media words in, and, and this is what we came up with. The uh, <laughs> we are more than halfway through the book. So hopefully you've been listening and following along and you're getting something out of it. I hope it's useful to you. But today is the big one and and uh Honestly, I, I, I need to thank RecruitmentMarketing.com for sponsoring this entire season, giving me the, the reason to kind of put up or shut up and just put this thing into an audiobook form and taking the opportunity to polish up things that I've changed my mind on, things that I've learned, things that uh, have changed my thinking in the last two or three years since I wrote the book. So uh, the only thing to note is that I also, if this is the sort of thing you care about, if you're an employer brand uh, aficionado or nerd or just someone who thinks it's interesting and who can blame you frankly it's to me it's the most interesting thing uh, I know I it's certainly the interesting thing I do you should sign up for my newsletter it is the as far as I can tell the biggest employer brand newsletter in the US or the world I don't know how one measures that no one really gives their their numbers but we just cracked 2,000 subscribers and that's kind of crazy so it's free. It shows up in your inbox every Monday morning. Go to employerbrand.news or go to employerbrandheadlines.substack.com. Sign up today. New information keeping you sharp every Monday morning. With that, let's get into the big picture. That is the entire employer brand architecture. Now, at some point, you will be faced with, or maybe you already have, faced with a seemingly simple question. And this sounds small, and, and, and I, I tried very specifically to start at the tiniest, tiniest tip of the spear here. And the question is this, what kind of video should you make that would attract more, more people to apply? Or maybe it's, it's what should you post on Instagram? Or should you even be on Instagram? Or you're going to about, you know, you're going to write a staff profile, but you don't know what angle to take, right? This is, these are questions that we as employer brand professionals end up asking a lot, usually of ourselves, sometimes of, of leadership, sometimes of our bosses, sometimes of our clients, what have you. But this is a core question. We spend a lot of time talking about what makes up a brand, which is massive, right? It's a big idea. But when it comes to make choices that it's going to influence and change the brand, where do you start? The process of building the materials that attract and validate someone to your hiring process requires answering questions like this all the time. The answers like these determine the su success of your recruiting initiatives. So, you know, no pressure or nothing, right? So how do you make these decisions? If you're going to make a video, or how do you know to make a video? But if you choose to make a video, how do you know what video to make? So there are a couple of standard ways of doing this. First, you could just look at what you, you know, what other companies are doing. Usually they're very big companies, usually very well-known companies, right? 
Um, if I had a buck for every time someone said, I, someone I worked with or someone I worked for uh, said, hey, what does Google do? And as if to say, we'll just do what Google does. I mean, I could just print a book on the stack of $20 bills. But you can't play follow the leader because what makes them great is not what makes you great. And honestly, to be crystal clear, follow the leader is a game you don't actually win because you never win. You're always following someone, right? And and we talked about this idea that you can't out-Google Google. So looking at what Google does is interesting, certainly. They've got a lot of good people doing stuff. Their brand is very strong. I don't know that their brand is strong because of the work the employer brand is doing or because of the context in which Google lives and the history of Google and the fact that everybody seems to have Gmail these days can't kind of separate those things apart. So if you can't out-Google Google, do you know why? Well, it's because you're not Google. You don't have their resources. You don't have their brand recognition. You don't have their customer reach. You don't have their reputation. You might not even be trying to hire in the same place or the same kinds of people as Google. I mean, it's not a bad thing, but the reverse is also true. Google can't out you, you. And that's important. You have to be yourself. And that's who I am, that the myself idea is what drives your decision-making process. Now, other people listen to the vendor or the recruiting ecosystem for what's cool. I'm convinced that no one in recruiting or HR who's ever bought a, will ever buy a blockchain-driven solution actually understands blockchain enough to explain it to anybody, but bought it because that's what all the blogs said to, to buy, what the social media chitter-chatter was talking about, right? Will blockchain actually help them hire? Well, if you don't understand the technology, if you didn't have a clear use case, if you didn't have an int- intentional metric on how to measure it, how do you answer that question? So how do you make a choice of what to build or what to buy? How do you know what video to make? How, how do you know what article to write? How do you know what tech stack to build? You could always ask me, but you know, you won't like my answer because the answer is simply this. I don't know, because I'm not in your shoes. So you might ask, what should I make a video about in order to support the brand? And it's a, it's a clear question, right? It's obvious what you're trying to get at. And it seems simple, but it's actually impossible to answer. That's not like a trick. That's not like me pulling the rug out from under you. Questions like this are akin to what should I do when I grow up or who should I marry? Trying to answer a question like this starts with another question, which leads to more questions until it just feels like it's questions all the way down without any kind of resolution. But people make decisions on these questions all the time. How? Well, strangely, the fastest way to answer the question properly is to slow down and understand the nature of the question. The people and professionals who are great at answering these questions, it's not, they're not great because they skip to the end of the book and they see the solution as if it glows in the dark. If you grabbed a mystery or a thriller and jumped to the last few pages, you might discover that they all killed him, but you don't understand why or how. And that's when you realize that the value of the book comes not in providing the answer, but in unraveling the mystery itself. It is, in fact, the journey that matters. I once... Uh, found a thread on the internet that literally dissected and described the answer to the Zen riddle, which is called, what is the sound of one hand clapping? It's literally one of the, to my understanding, and excuse me, I don't actually know this. This is is not firsthand knowledge. It is supposed to be one of the last questions a Zen master asks a student to measure their progress, to see if they've attained some kind of enlightenment. Now, the answer is fraught with meaning. It's, it's, It's riddled with intention. So knowing the answer actually isn't valuable. 
But understanding how to think through the riddle is everything. Because just because I know the answer, fascinating though it might be, I am no more enlightened by knowing this information. Certainly no more than an, a monk who's completed the, contemplated that question for years and years. It's the process of discovering and answering the question on your own that creates enlightenment. The answer is not the answer. Your employer brand is not dissimilar to these kinds of mysteries. If I understood your employer brand, I might be able to tell you that the video you should make should focus on leadership, but that doesn't necessarily help you understand why. It just means that I know some secrets and you have to ask me for answers. And that puts me in a position of power and maybe that makes me feel good on some days, but that doesn't help you. In fact, if you try to take the answer as gospel and say, ah, we should always make videos about leadership, it's very likely that the subject isn't as important as the message inside the video. You can do everything, quote unquote, right, and discover that you're no farther along than if you did it all wrong, or you flipped a coin. So before I put on like some saffron robes and start to, to chant the secret to your employer brand is within you, I mean, it is, but that, that, how does that help you? Let me assure you that you can determine the answer, but only once you understand all the stuff that creates that question. The answer to the question of what video do I make and all those other questions begins by understanding the complete architecture of your employer brand. And once you see that, the answers get really, really obvious and they come quickly. Invest in this process on your own and you'll be equipped to make these decisions easier and over a very, very long term. So here's the employer brand architecture. And while the architecture seems like it starts at the top, you can use it to answer questions by starting at the bottom of the system and working your way up and we'll break it down. Now, listeners, this is where things are complicated because I have a diagram and it's a very complicated diagram. So to sum up, it starts with this idea that leadership drives policies, mission values, and hiring. That the mission and value informs the language, the mission and value informs the people, the hiring informs the people, and together they all inform the culture, which then feeds back to hiring. That is to say, as we talked about last time, if you have a culture, it attracts like-minded people and it filters out people who aren't like-minded. So it filters, so the culture actually determines who you hire. Next to that is you have industry and competition uh, competitive sets, all driving, so culture, industry, and competition driving towards brand position. That leads to EVP, that leads to a brand promise, and that leads to tactics. That's from the top down. But we're gonna answer questions by going from the bottom up. And at the bottom, we have the tactics. Tactics are the things you do that people actually see, whether it's videos or referral programs or you know changing your career site, your content strategy. The tax tactics are the actions with an intention and a purpose behind them. They are, if we're really honest with each other, the things you spend money on. They are the things your boss thinks you do. <laughs> Sorry, but yeah. Which tactics, what message to deliver these tactics, the audience reach, all that stuff is bundled up in this area. If you're selling donuts and you wanted to increase your sales, you could lease a billboard. That's a valid tactic. But if you don't have a purpose and an intention behind that, you know, why you bought that billboard, sometimes referred to as a strategy, how would you decide which billboard to lease or what messaging to put on it? Should you focus on making people hungry halfway across town for donuts in a general sense? Like, hey, everybody loves donuts, which is great because that'll increase people's interest in donuts. But how will they know to come to you for donut satisfaction? Should you put it next to your store with a big arrow pointing to your front door? Donuts are here. They're ready to go, right? Something like that. Something very call to action-y. 
Great, but don't people walking by already kind of know you exist? And how do you decide between the billboard and a guy in a donut outfit handing out flyers? or radio commercials, or skywriting, or a coupon, or, 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 or whatever. There's like an infinite number of coins that you flip to land on random results to the point where nothing might have been more appropriate. At the very least, doing nothing would at least yield one less invoice to pay. <laughs> but that's tactics. And choosing tactics have to connect to a big idea. And this is how we start to ladder up. First, to our brand promise. Now, the answer to the ta which tactic and how you comes from the purpose of the tactic itself. And that starts with the brand promise. That brand promise is what you tell the prospect or candidate they can expect working here. Usually in a broad sense, when you get to tactical levels and you say, okay, we're going to direct this tactic to a very particular audience, you might refine that message a smidge and target it to that audience. But ultimately, the brand promise is the broader sense of, this is what it's like to work here. This is the promise we make to prospects and candidates that this is what it's like when they get here. Perhaps you're promising the stability or support or innovation and change and fame and maybe a mission that you really care about that they'll work towards. And we'll break all that stuff down later on, but what's happening here is you're being very, very clear and cognizant of what the business is all about to its staff and then communicating that broad idea via focused and specific tactics. Now, to some employer branders, that's it. That's all they do. They define the brand promise and they tactical palooza across that, you know, against that brand, against that brand promise. There's a lot to it. But for right now, if we go back to that donut store example, is your brand promise that you offer donuts worth crossing the city for? Or are you promised donuts that are good enough but available right now? That brand promise directly answers the question of where should my billboard go and what should it say? If you have super high-end, never to be found flavors you don't hear anyplace else, donuts, donuts worth traveling across town for, stick that billboard in a place where lots of people are, even if it's farther away from you. Because what you're saying is you're unique and special and magical and these are the best donuts and if you care about donuts, this is the place to go. If your reason, your brand promise is to say, we got donuts now. And there are plenty of places that put lights out that say, our donuts are ready now. They have four flavors. They always taste the same, but they're good. But they're good enough, right? They're, they're ready right now. You put that billboard right next to the store and say, donuts are ready. Most companies have one or two big issues with their brand promise. Either the brand promise isn't well known where everybody already knows the brand promise so much, it never gets communicated outward, right? It's the know thyself model where you know, everybody knows our company's about this, yet everybody inside the company knows that, but you haven't done a great job telling anybody else about it. For example, at a big box store at a customer service role, what's the promise one company has versus another, right? And, and this is to, to be picky and drop some names here. What's the difference in customer service between a Walmart and a Target and a Best Buy? Are they mostly the same? I mean, they're probably like 90% the same. Companies who don't have an obvious means of differentiating themselves get stuck in the mud. They talk about the same thing everybody else talks about, right? Because they're so similar. The candidate takes more of a scattershot approach because they don't see the difference. They don't see the difference between the donuts, right? The donut that's $7 that you should make a special appointment for because it's magical versus the donut that's a buck 50 you buy in the pack a dozen and hope they don't completely get crushed on the way to the office. Those are not the same donuts. They're very different. 
But in this customer service role where Walmart and Target and Best Buy to someone on the outside, they may look exactly the same. The job, the tasks are the same. The uniform is slightly different color. Okay, I'll give you that. I guess some people like red and some people like blue, I guess. You're going to get insurance, probably in the same kind of band. Salary is going to be about the same kind of band. Is it the only thing that matters is how far you have to drive for it? Maybe. That's the problem. Without a differentiator, there's nothing on which a candidate can choose. Candidates go, I'll apply for all of them because they're all kind of the same. So what does it matter? I just want the job because they don't realize that one company offers something that the others don't. Conversely, a company that is so oblivious to itself may never remember to spell it out to the world. The local company that thinks it has to compete with Google and forgets to talk about how great a team they have locally or how short the commute is, yeah, they're missing the point. Or the nonprofit that forgets to tell candidates how good it feels to make a difference. It's like that old joke about how fish don't talk about the water because we're always in the water, right? They don't think about it. They're surrounded by it. They forget about it because it's, it's, it's there every day. How often do you think about air? How often do you think about um, the sky? Not very often, probably. You see it every day and you just kind of, okay, sure, great, whatever. And you assume that because you know it, everybody else knows it too. And that's not always the case. The next step up the ladder is the employer value proposition, the EVP. Now, I've had a lot of change of heart and some in many multiple different directions about the concept of EVP. So let's get through this and maybe I'll kind of, kind of thread some new ideas here. Sure, the post office isn't exactly promising adventure and excitement, and that hedge fund isn't promising a chance to change the world because the post office has no adventure to offer, and the hedge fund is focused on, you know, big sacks of cash. The promise that originates from the company and what the company offers to its people of employer is called the employer value proposition. We were talking about the brand promise which is a little more tactical, it's a little more granular, but the overarching sense of what the company offers, not just you know what the, in, in, what the company offers its people is the EVP. The post office has stability to offer and to some people that's exactly what they value and consequently they wanna work at a post office. Now you might object here by saying what people want is a paycheck. Now I think in the last two or three years, we've gotten past a lot of that hang up. Not completely, I still see signals that people still think in, in the end it's money that matters and that's all that's gonna move the needle and that's not wrong, but it's not completely true. It is not a one-dimensional mover, right? Try not to get hung up on salary. Try not to get hung up on benefits. We'll explain this more in detail down in the book. But those things are roughly similar across companies, right? Most waiters of a certain kind of fast, casual restaurant get roughly the same paycheck, they get roughly the same benefits, they get roughly the same, they're very parallel businesses, right? They know what to expect. So think of them as, as table stakes or the thing you will use to increase when all else fails. I mean, to be fair, the book is here to keep you from having to do that and help you define your own strategic advantage and how to really leverage it. But when there's nothing else, spend the money, I guess. We'll break down EVP in a minute, but just think about it as the underlying promise you make to all staff. That's enough. That's enough to kind of get us here. The next step up the ladder is the brand position. Where does your EVP come from? And that, by the way, where does the blank come from is pretty much this whole chapter. We just go up, keep walking up the ladder and say, where does this come from? Well, it comes up the next step up the ladder. The value your company offers comes from its brand position. 
And the brand position is the flip side of candidates employee motivation. If there are people motivated by stability, you might be a company that offers stability and you can attract people motivating by status if that's what your company is all about. People who are not in the marketing field, and actually to be fair, plenty of people who are in the marketing field, tend to get hung up at the concept of positioning because it's really broad and vague. And to them, I refer to the Mad Men episode called A Man with a Plan, it's season six, it's uh, it's great. It, well, let's be fair, Mad Men is fantastic across the board, but uh, it's this idea where the creative team, they talk about the differences in margarines. And margarines a butter substitute in which each brand is functionally identical to the others, right? There's no such thing as a better margarine, it's just oil that you whip with a, a chemical to kind of keep it cohesive so it doesn't turn into oil, right? It's just margarine. Simple as that. So how is it that some margarines are more expensive than others? How is it that people choose margarine when they're functionally the exact same? That's the problem. How do you market one if you can't tell them apart? Now, in the episode, director Ted Chow uh, uses the Gilligan's Island metaphor, which at the, at the time I heard it went, that is insane and stupid and dead on so good at kind of showing you what this concept of positioning means. One margarine is the luxury brand. It's the howls of the situation. They charge more. They have nicer packaging. One brand is the hard worker like the skipper. One brand is the brainy one like the professor that goes all the way down through the goofy brand, the sexy brand, the attractive but attainable brand. These are archetypes that allow us to understand at a glance which brand we see ourselves as. If you see yourself as a smart consumer, you pick the brainy brand, right? It might be positioned as, for people who know, they pick this one. Why? Well, because it's the same price as everything else, but it's better, right? It's it's, it's the smart choice. Or you see yourself as first class, you pick the Howell brand. Actually, you <laughs> it goes a little more complicated. Not only if you see yourself as a first class kind of person, if you want other people to see you as first class, you pick the Howell brand. Now, while Mad Men saw the seven castaways as different positions, I see eight, and we're going to talk about them down the road when we get into motivations. I think that's technically to next week's episode. But this is what we mean by position. Who are you? If you offer a functionally identical product as a number of other companies, they're data scientists, they're nurses, they're developers, they are sales leaders, whatever. Why choose you? Well, there's infinite number of companies these days. So what you do is you say, rather than explain to you all the different ways we're different, we're going to focus on a kind of archetype. For me, archetypes are, uh, how do I say this? They're a bit of a, a, a shtick. They're a bit of a gimmick. But to be perfectly honest, sometimes they're an incredibly useful gimmick. Sometimes when you're trying to get leadership teams or people in the company to kind of describe and define the difference of their company versus others, an archetype model allows them to see in a different kind of way. Now, I don't adhere to a strictly archetypical model of things, but again, it's useful. It can be a helpful kind of trick to help getting people think about the branding question, which they don't normally think about, in a very effective way. So where does your brand position come from? Well, it comes from industry for one. It comes from a couple of different things, but the first one is industry. Your brand position, right? That core idea that determines the motivations you reward, it's a function of a couple of different things. Now, the first of those things is industry. Imagine you reward people who spend an extra hour in the office burning a little midnight oil. In some companies, that extra hour here or there is an example of people trying to develop themselves 
or they're taking care with a little more ownership over the role or right, whatever. It's something that doesn't happen all the time. But when that same extra effort gets put into, say, a legal setting, an industry where employees are expected, especially non-partners, are expected to put in 60, 70, and 80 hours a week on a regular basis, that little extra effort example of work-life balance. Hey, we're only working you 60 hours this week instead of 80. The industry dictates the context around your company. The same reward for the same effort, but the industry determines the meaning. So when you're looking at your industry, you have to ask, what are the expectations and norms and standards of the industry before saying you're any kind of position? Think of yourself as a company that offers deep support for your employees, but if a competitor in that space outshines you, you can't own that position. You gotta rethink it. For, and going back to the butter thing, if there's already a first-class butter and you're not as first-class as the first-class butter, you're gonna get crushed. Because if you care about being the first-class margarine, you go with the competitor, not you, because they're more first-class than you are. You have to redefine who you are relative to your industry space. Now, once you understand the industry standards and the aggregate, now think about the direct comp competition for talent. There are two ways to look at this. It can be a means of focusing on one or two competitors for talent within the industry or looking at competitors for talent outside the industry, right? There's, you know, that, that's, that's useful. If you're a bank looking to hire a project manager, great project managers don't have to come from other banks. They can come from hospitals and startups and telecoms and uh, software companies, right? They can come from almost anywhere. Project managers can come from a lot of different places, in which case your competitive set is very, very broad. If you're in an oil gas town like Houston, for example, your project folks are going to be people used to working at large energy companies. And that helps you kind of focus your understanding of who your competition is. The expectation will color your ability to position yourself one way or the other. Now, the third driver of your brand position, and possibly the most important, is culture. We talked a bit about that before, but now we're going to get into the nuts and bolts of this. Culture is an off-sighted but rarely defined topic in an HR and business. Everyone knows what it is, they seem to think, but no one can really point their finger on exactly what it is, right? It's, it's that joke about pornography, I know it when I see it, except we don't. We really don't know what it is, even when we do see it. Or if we see it, we see such a teeny piece of it, and we say, that's culture. You're like, yeah, but that's not all your culture. That's a way of seeing culture. It's not your complete culture. Now, as we discussed earlier, your culture is the mysterious stuff that makes decisions for a company in the absence of a clear decision maker. It's, it's the gravity between two objects. It's impossible to see, but easy to see the impact of every single day. To think about culture, and this is me describing a, a diagram real quick, culture is driven, we talked about a bit this, the things that make culture happen are the policies, the language, and the people. The culture also kind of feeds back up to hiring, which impacts the people. But all that stuff is driven by leadership and mission and values. So, for example, think back to a time your company launched a major internal initiative. And, you know, we can talk about diversity. We can talk about uh, belonging. We can, it doesn't even have to be kind of a, a soft sort of situation like that. And I know that soft is pejorative and I apologize. It's not meant to be. Maybe it's initiative about, hey, what we're going to do is we're going to focus this last month of the quarter on hitting certain goals. And if we get them, we get a certain kind of reward, any kind of initiative so long as it's internal. Doesn't matter, right? Leadership makes an announcement. 
Maybe you make some posters and flyers. Maybe some emails go out. Maybe Slack gets filled up with rah-rah about how this thing should be. Comms did their job and made it very clear how important this initiative was. But did it get any traction or did it just kind of fade away to be replaced by something else or worse, business as usual? That's the culture deciding that this idea wasn't going to stick. Or the culture did support the initiative and the changes did occur. No one person decided yes or no, but the culture exists, either embraces it or rejects it. And when a company announces that their sexual harassment is anathema and all employees will be treated the same regardless of gender, the culture decides if that's really how things are going to be. Culture is, to be perfectly honest, semi-magical, right? It can, it can be used to attribute so much of the power or the weakness of a company. In my interviews with employees at different companies, people are happy to state that they love the company and they stay in the company because of the culture. That they're more than happy to jump ahead and say, hey, that's, that's, it's all about the culture. We have a great culture. And if you go on Glassdoor and you go to other review sites, you all hear about the culture. We have a great culture. And it is an important driver for what happens every day. So we need to understand where it comes from. And the three primary drivers of culture are corporate policies, the people who already exist within the company, and the language people use on a regular basis. Told you this is complicated. Hang on, we're not there. We're not, we're maybe halfway done with this. Welcome change agents to your go-to place for stories that ignite your spirit, fuel your purpose and connect us all. We believe in the incredible power of the human spirit, its boundless resilience and the inspiration it brings to our lives. On the Driving Change podcast, we'll journey together through the extraordinary yet very relatable experiences of some of the most amazing people on earth. Our mission, that through these stories, we might just spark change within you and awaken a newfound motivation to harness your unique gifts to make a real difference in the world. So get ready to be inspired and join us on this incredible adventure. You can find the Driving Change podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you love listening to your favorite podcasts. Policies. Now, policies, I think, are the... uh, No one talks about this. Employer brand, we talk, we assume policies simply exist. They are the uh, boulders in the road that are unmovable things that we must work around. And they have a huge impact on culture by providing boundaries rather than sparking it. For example, you can't create a culture of work-life balance. That's not something you just do. There is no magic wand that makes that happen. But if you can influence and create some appropriate policies like extra PTO, uh, family leave, recognizing people embrace work, effective work without killing themselves, rewards in the forms of vacation and breaks instead of just cash, all that stuff slowly changes the culture and fosters and encourages this idea that work-life balance matters. You know, uh, you could have a Slack channel that says, look at pictures of fellow employees having fun outside of work. Why? Well, because you want to encourage people to turn off and focus on their their outside work life. And then when they're at work, they can focus on their work life. That's just it's a shift in the culture. You do that not by flipping a switch, but by creating a lot of policy changes. Now, at the same time, policies can kill culture real fast. That same culture of work-life balance quickly decays when PTO is limited and gets strictly enforced or 
the boss says, I won't approve this PTO because so many people are taking PTO. That's not PTO. That's, that's, that's something else. I'm not sure what we call that. Unrestricting address code doesn't create a more informal and familial culture, but demanding suits and ties and heels is a great way to ensure informality never really happens. They, the policies can work both ways. Now note that while this is the fastest and most direct means leadership has in changing and influencing cultures, it is still not direct control. No one controls the culture. It is a shared understanding. It is a a shared concept of how we do things around here. If leadership's trying to make a specific change, they can build policies and incentivize or disincentivize the aspect of a culture they want to change. But the actual culture change is out of their grasp. It just isn't something they can do. Any attempt to mandate a culture from the outside leads to corporate schizophrenia, where people are encouraged to pay lip service to an idea, but their actions suggest something very, very different. I mean, you can ask a shark to act like a sheep, and you can incentivize very sheepish behavior, but ultimately, a shark is a shark, and they're going to make their own choices to their own behavior. And at some point, a shark just turns on and becomes a shark. You can't tell a shark to not be a shark. Now, that means that people and the language that they share are also very powerful factors in creating and maintaining that culture. Specifically, without people, can you even say you have a culture? Culture is a function of people. Without people, there is no culture. The people you have hired already to accomplish the goals, to complete the tasks, they all have personalities, proclivities, motivations, desires, frustration, personal baggage, and occasional medication prescribed or off the shelf, as it were, um, way off the shelf sometimes, that come to bear and sometimes on those other people. People are messy. I think any, any HR person worth their salt will tell you HR is a complicated job, not because the job itself is complicated, but because the subject of their job, people, are the messiest things in the known universe. People are messy, right? The sum total of all those interactions, feelings, and personalities between all those people creates the culture, right? Take 10 people who are pretty introverted and very comfortable when the team succeeds instead of when an individual shines, and you can guess what the culture is going to be pretty quickly. I mean, sure, maybe a leader kind of, you know, manifests itself from around those people, but they're not going to be very dictatorial driving leaders. They're going to be very consensus driven leaders because that's the culture of the team, because those are the people who are in the team. You can add more people and those people make an impact on the culture. So in a company of three, a fourth person makes a huge impact, but in a company of a thousand, the next person doesn't really make a ripple. That's how people work. Language is separate from people because I think while people don't generally change very often, you can change the language people use. Now, language isn't spontaneously generated. It comes from people. Now, I separate language from people because while people are very slow to change, you can change the words a person uses. So think to your company. What are the words that people often use to describe themselves or describe each other? What are the words they choose when they describe their work, when they're trying to solve a problem together with other people inside the team or inside the company? Words are choices, and those choices reflect the culture, right? You'll notice that, you know, uh, Facebook talks about move fast and break things. That's not the culture, but the fact that people say it a lot 
implies and in fact instills this idea that it's okay to move fast and break things. It reinforces the culture. If suddenly the old Zuck said, hey, we're not going to say move fast and break things. We're simply, what we're going to say instead is slow and steady wins the race, which is never going to happen for him. But if he did, and people around him went, okay, I guess we're supposed to say that now, and that trickles down, you're going to see a change in culture, right? Words are choices, simple as that. Now, if you notice that you're, the people in a company talked about sparking and instilling wonder, what would you think about them? You'd think a certain thing. You'd feel it a certain way, right? As, as the kids would say. It's not good or bad. I'm not saying that. I'm simply saying those are words that are unusual. And if you heard them on a on a regular basis by people at a certain company, you would connect the dots, consciously or subconsciously. In the same situation, what would you think about a company if instead of sparking wonder, you talked about drive demand or target the message or disrupt the prospect's worldview? It's not the message, it's the language being used. The language tells others how we see ourselves and the preponderance of certain terms showcases and reinforces that worldview. Imagine every day you heard the term, we work as one team, and you heard it by lots of people. You were surrounded by that term, and you actually started to see yourself using that term. It's not long before you find yourself changing your approach, especially if you just came from a move fast and break things kind of culture, right? You're going to take a different kind of risk. You're going to have a different kind of mindset. You won't accept failure in the same way because, ah, it's move fast and break things. Now it's like, ooh, I'm supposed to be working as one team and me breaking things impacts people around me. Maybe I should sit and have a second thought about that. The language attracts and supports the culture of a company. It reinforces alignment to it and tells new hires what's valued and how to behave. The people and language are direct, out, are direct outcomes of the mission and values of the company. Now, I, I tie mission and values not because they're the same, they are not, but for this, this fact, you know, this kind of diagram, they're enough to be considered in the same way. So think about it as what the company espouses about what it does, why it does it, how it does it, as a means to attract the people who have aligned belief systems, people who think and feel similarly. If you believe that you can save the world one recycled glass bottle at a time, you should expect that an ordinary number of people who are going to apply to that job are going to be recycling true believers. If your mission is to become the number one pen maker in the world, people who want to be there are people with ambition and drive, potentially around pens, but they're going to have a growth mindset. They want to make this company the number one blah, blah, blah in the world. Now, much of the late 80s and early 90s could be called the mission era of business. There are I mean, it was just, it was brutal. If you weren't there, it was just so sad that every company read the article. It seemed like they read the same article and said, oh, we're gonna have a mission. And they would go into a dictionary. They would throw a bunch of words against a wall. The lawyers would come by and take off anything that sounded scary. And what you were left was something boring, horrible, something. And hundreds of books and thousands of pre-blog magazines espoused the power of a clear mission, the flag you could wave that all the employees would salute. A strong mission was supposed to lead to clear lines of strategy, right? It was supposed to become the mechanism of competition. And whether it was a reaction to watching videos of Japanese workers doing calisthenics before work in order to get, you know, to, to further company goals, or potentially the, the breakdown of one company for life expectations in the U.S. and Europe, every company came up with a mission to mount it on a plaque somewhere 
in the on the wall and they just collects dust. My personal favorite mission was from Pepsi, who didn't who probably did it right. <laughs> Think of all the ones that I've seen. And their mission was very, very simple. Beat Coke. Just putting that out there. And by the way, if you find a minute and you Google Weird Al mission statement, it is um, it's glorious. It's glorious. And you may not be a Weird Al fan, but it's okay. It's worth it because it is just nothing but trope after trope after trope. It's great. But that's not the mission and values we're talking about. We're talking about avoiding business school terms or $5 words. It's about stating the intention and purpose of the company Right? What does this company do? What is, why do they exist? Do they exist to move cargo across the continent? Is the company there to put a drone in every kid's hands? Are you looking to revolutionaries about how people think about dim sum? Whatever it is, what is the reason your company exists? And we're not talking about to make a bunch of money. That's assumed. Seth Godin, good old Uncle Seth, says that the businesses exist to make a change in the universe. Whether small or big, it doesn't matter. They exist to make a change. To some level, the reason the businesses existed or you know kind of came into formation is because somebody realized that doing it by myself, I can't achieve much. But if I get 10 other people around me and we, we focused on the same vision, we can achieve a lot more and distribute the, you know, the result, the return on that investment, right? That's the purpose of a business. So what change is your business trying to make? What is it there for? Write it down. Perfect. That's great. No, 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 no. You're fine. That's it. You're done. That's your mission. So if that's the mission, if that's the what, the values are the how. If you're trying to change the way people think about dim sum, and why not? Go for it. Who doesn't love dim sum? Are you doing it via empathy? Are you doing, are you trying to make dim sum accessible to Kansas by making it ubiquitous? Right? Are you aggressively putting it on shelves and spending lots of cash on celebrity endorsements or commercials or media buys? These answers show what you value. You might value process or people, outcomes, willingness to try new things, stability, steadiness, whatever it is. Some companies proclaim those values, but nine times out of 10, the company that just builds posters of their values is the company trying to convince the rest of the company that these are everyone else's values. They're not so much statements of shared values as they are well-printed red flags. It's not universal. I have a first-hand account of that. It's not universal. But in my experience, it's more common than not. Now note, while you're mapping out your employer brand architecture, it's imperative that you check to make sure that your company's mission and values align with your brand position, regardless of the fact that they're in this diagram really far away from each other. You kind of have to have a check, right? If there, there's no direct line connecting one to the other, but it's a litmus test to ask yourself if the two align. If your company's values involved empowering employees and your brand position should align right up, it should concur. If it doesn't, it means you've either made some dis- mistakes distilling your brand or your company is organizationally schizophrenic. And I've seen that. <laughs> it does happen. Either answer suggests that no amount of employer brand thinking is going to fix the underlying problem. It's going to whitewash over what's going on. Maybe it makes things a little better, but it's not really going to solve what's really happening. Culture is powerful because it becomes self-reinforcing. If your culture is all about respect, it will attract people and hire people who also value respect, thus filling the company with people who are more respectful towards each other, thus making it more of a respectful company. Those people slowly help the language evolve and can ask leadership to change policies to support that culture. 
with such a well-embedded idea that has its own self-reinforcing feedback loop. You know, I'll leave it to others to talk about how to change culture. I think Leandro Herrero does a great job about that stuff. But suffice it to say, culture change is really hard. I mean, like really, really, really hard. So your job here is really to understand it, storytell around it, define it in a way that people can go, yeah, that, that sounds like us, and move on. So all this stuff, we've been talking for a long time, and all this stuff is ultimately driven by leadership. But don't overstate leadership's ability to make the changes, right? They make hiring decisions. They determine the company policies. They select and promote the company's values. But as it should be clear by now, because of the complex nature of how all this stuff works together, this kind of weird Rube Goldberg machine, right? Leadership doesn't have a direct line of sight into the brand or the employer brand. Leadership makes choices that build people who cultivate a culture that determines the position, which becomes your brand. Yeah, I said Rube Goldberg. I meant it. But that's honestly why they have you. Your goal is to know when and where leadership has a direct line of sight to some part of the architecture. And if you want to make a change, how to leverage them, right? If you see an opportunity to make your company a place where people are empowered to become their best professional selves and the policies encourage supervisors to micromanage a little bit, a conversation, an argument that is relaxing those policies supports the stronger brand, which ultimately helps the company. Your role allows you to direct leadership's attention to the problem of the company that limit or hinder that brand narrative, right? You can't say, here's a new policy, because that's not, no one's gonna listen to that. But when you get leadership's ear, you can say, this is who we say we are. This is how we talk about ourselves. Here are some places in which we do not live up to that mission or values. And this is how it's hindering our ability to attract people who are similar to these things we say we care about. They will have questions, you will help answer them, and they will make the call, one way or the other. You can't make that call, but you can influence. At the same time, you also can't ask leadership to change the language. That's something they definitely don't have control over. At best, they can lean on or a new or refactored value that begins to use a certain part of language. They can start to intentionally instill certain ideas into their language in hopes that it kind of trickles down, but there's no guarantee that people embrace that. Leadership just doesn't have that kind of power. That is the entire employer brand architecture, but we're not done. I know. I've been talking for a while. You've paused this four times. I get it. Trust me, I've made a couple mistakes along the way, and I've made some small edits to this document, but (laughs) just saying, that's how it works. The architecture is useful to you, but it's also useful to see how marketing, corporate or consumer, whatever, overlays on that, right? Because you should be interacting with them quite a bit. And this is the means by which you can say, this is how my world works. And this is how I see your world works. And suddenly you get to have a better conversation. So if you build out your architecture, it is a bit of a Pandora's box. On one hand, it helps you understand all the things that drive your brand and it helps you decide what tactics to choose. It helps you decide how to implement them. But At the same time, building out this kind of architecture means the company has two competing brand architectures, one for employees and one for consumers, maybe even investors, maybe even corporate audiences. Maybe there's a lot of competing audiences here. The company with two competing or misaligned brand architectures is a brand that's going to spend its time in endless meetings just trying to figure out whose brand is right. 
Sometimes that process will be soft, sometimes passive aggressive, and sometimes it's gonna be straight up yelling at each other, but it's going to happen. And it is an absolute and horrible waste of time. One, then I'm gonna be sad to say, you will lose. But here's the real solution. Your architecture is right, but here is how marketing, in every way how you wanna kind of focus it, the corporate brand, I guess, how it overlays. Yeah, they have a leadership box too. That leadership determines the missions and values. Those mission and values determine the audience. We don't even define audience, so suddenly we're splitting off and after the rest of the way down is stuff that they care about. Their audience is not employees, it's not prospects, it's potential buyers, potential investors, whoever. What is the promise they give them? What is sometimes they call that a tagline? And what is the channel by which they communicate that? There's a lot more detail in there, but I don't live in that world. But what I've done is kind of said, this is the connector that takes what I what we do and what y'all do in marketing and connects the dots and says, look, we all agree on leadership. We all agree on the mission and values. Why? Because we didn't make them and we can't change them. They simply are. After that, we deviate and we don't have to step on each other's toes. Now, think through it better, you can find ways of supporting each other, but we'll talk about that separately. Now, you can see that despite the fact that these brands are seen differently, being understood by potentially two very different audiences, there's a common source of the employer brand for all aspects, right? Doesn't matter. They're all starting with the leadership, which determines the mission, purpose, and values, and that's really what drives what the company sells, how it sells it, what it offers employees, all the stuff. Those two ideas are the rudder that direct the ship. And even if, if marketing is at the front of the ship with all the good seats and all the, you know, the cool stuff and you're way at the back, it doesn't matter. The same rudder moves both of you. While many candidates can be customers and there's plenty of data that says there's an overlap there and there's a value and understanding of that overlap, I'm not really going to get into that today. Seeing these two parts of the brand, there's a clear difference. Consumer and investment audiences do not live within the company, right? Their paychecks and livelihoods do not come directly from the company. They are not using the company to support their own personal and professional identities. They may like what having a specific car or a mobile carrier or a shoe says about them, but they don't influence someone's sense of self like what they do for a living and where they work, right? You might feel good that you drive a Audi or a Corvette or whatever, and you think it says something about you, but it doesn't say as much about you as whether you work at Goldman Sachs or World Wildlife Federation. Simple as that. They're far more intrinsically influential ideas of how a human being is and who they are than the things they buy. And that's why employer brand is so much more complex a diagram than the consumer side. The consumer side may only interact with the brand for 0.001% of their lives. It's the choice they make when they bought those shoes, when they bought that car. They may drive it for a while, but it's not like it's they're spending eight hours a day in it, five days a week for 20 years, right? That allows marketers and consumers to tell the what people at the company is all about, right? They, they don't have a lot of touch points. They don't have a lot of interaction. Maybe over time, that consumer build a brand affinity, but there's plenty of data that says the concept of brand affinity, especially on the consumer side, isn't nearly as strong as we've been led to believe. Go take a look at how brands work. Uh, it's a book, it's fantastic, and it's got the data and the receipts to say brand affinity, especially on the consumer side, isn't what we want it to be, isn't what we've been told it is. 
Now compare that to an employee who spends one third, one half of every workday in the office, surrounded by people also in the same position. They see that logo a million times a day. They see the company from a deeply intimate perspective. They see the decisions that leadership makes. They see where the machine is held together with paper clips and dreams. They don't have a lot of illusions because they've seen how the sausage gets made. Thus, it's a lot harder to tell an employee what the brand is because they actually see it. Heck, they live it every single day. This kind of understanding has a, a number of valuable outcomes. First, it makes it really clear what the employer brand is and how it's different from the other aspects of the brand and how it has to be handled a little differently, right? It's not the same as marketing. It's not the same as consumer marketing. Sure, it shares a lot of tools and it shares a lot of expectations, but because of that quality quantity thing we talked about early, you can't just apply one to the other. It's not a one-to-one -one connection. You gotta handle it a little differently. Second, it shows marketing and comms that while you're trying to manage an aspect of the brand, you're still aligned to the brand mother elements, ensuring that what you're doing isn't building something separate or creating some sort of cacophonous brand ecosystem It's gonna or something that's gonna distract or hurt the consumer brand. You're doing something that aligns to what they're doing so that you can talk to your audience in a way that matters and they can talk to their audience in a way that matters. And as the consumer brand, to be blunt, funds your paycheck and your budget, you really need to be committed to not getting in their way. That's not to say that it should limit you, but you need to spend the time to make sure it's clear to them that there's room for everyone to support the business without stepping on each other's toes. Third, it gives players the sense of security that you get what you're doing and you understand you're part of the brand and you take it seriously. Marketing and comm folks take their job really seriously. In fact, most of them went to school for this job. You probably didn't, as there is no employer brand college. There's no major for employer brand. They take it seriously, and they don't want to, and you'll forgive me, they don't want to carry around some dilettante recruiter with a cute idea about marketing as they do their own jobs. It's not fair to them. They're going to resent you. You need to come across as someone who understands their world pretty well and how your world connects and intersects, supports each other, and you can work together effectively. Finally, it creates the beginnings of ground rules upon which collaboration can occur, right? That's something you should be working towards. When you think about brand, especially when you're talking to marketing and all the other parts of the marketing brand, think of your brand as a lens, and you are looking through the lens to talk to prospects, potential employees. Consumer marketing is looking through that lens to people who might buy a thing right? Investor relations might be looking through the lens to talk to inv in, uh, institutional investors or retail investors, right? But it's the same lens. And the fact that it's the same lens means that you have a shared sense of what the company's all about. It also means that if marketing, consumer marketing decides we need to change the lens, they need to understand that it affects everybody else. And they get that. You just need to be a part of that equation. So yeah, collaboration and connection with marketing is a very good thing for you. And in fact, as they see you as a peer, they're going to start to consider using employer brand as an aspect of their own consumer brand. That gives you an even larger platform from which to work. That's kind of the win-win-win, if you're, a, you know, you like that joke, of employer brand. It's how you work better together. Okay, that was, whew, I did it under an hour. <laughs> that was a lot. 
Come back next week. It's a smaller episode. We're going to talk about motivations, which is also a lot of fun. I can't wait to dive into that. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks so much for recruitmentmarketing.com for sponsoring it. Go sign up for my newsletter at employerbrand.news or employerbrandheadlines.substack.com. And uh, we'll see you next week. Bye. How much do you understand the future of finance? I'm Jim Roos, a top 10 banking influencer and host of the podcast Banking Transform, where we dive deeply into the rapidly evolving world of banking and financial technology. Join me as I interview industry experts, thought leaders, and innovators as they unravel the latest banking trends, disruptions, and game-changing technologies reshaping the world of finance. Redefine your understanding of the banking ecosystem. Subscribe now to Banking Transformed, available wherever you get your podcasts and now available on YouTube.